I want to welcome everyone. Uh, this is the last talk on the foundation of the body, first foundation, physical form. And uh, then there'll be a discussion uh, some week around this, I think. <laughs> I can't even remember. Uh, then we'll move into the next foundation, which is uh, Vedna or feeling tones. And that's a rather short one. I don't have a lot to say. I have about two or three talks, and that'll be it for that one. And then we'll, so that the, the, the main uh, brunt of the talks in this series on the Sadhapatana Sutta has to do with the foundation of the body. And we've looked at it from a variety of different points of view. And tonight I'd like to um, incorporate all those points of view into the principle that should be guiding our meditation. And that is said simply that the sacred is that which is not created by thought. The sacred is not something you can think about, but exists prior to thinking, prior to establishing a conceptual overlay. And therefore, our practices should resolve the compulsion to think and take us into deeper quietude. <clears throat> now, you can judge a practice by whether it does just that. Do the practices release the need to have to think about something? Do they allow us to feel as if we are abiding uh, in a quieter from a quieter resonance in ourself than prior to practicing. So that, that should be a standard model for all of us uh, in terms of direction. Uh, and uh, just look whatever practice you're doing, because many practices, when especially in this tradition, uh, often make you noisier in practicing. And you have to ask yourself, you know, that, whose authority are we going to judge this by? We're going to judge it by the teacher who says this is what I need to do, 10,000 mantras or whatever, or by the effect uh, on our, my consciousness and whether this moves me in a direction that I can perceive as being useful once I understand the true direction that all spirituality moves. So I thought I, what I would do is look at all of the different practices that we've sort of laid out in front of ourselves uh, from the early part of this sutta and see whether they meet the critical test, the litmus test of whether they make us quieter and resolve some of our compulsion to have to think or whether in fact they do just the opposite of that. And so I want to look at uh, what we've been doing here. <clears throat> The first, uh, the first uh, direction, practice, that the sutta uh, draw, drew uh, us to, pointed out, was the uh, entering the body to steady our attention. And it gave the breath as a way to do just that. And to, to find some foothold in ourselves that allowed us to even know the difference between thinking and experience, which is what breath meditation ultimately does. It not only steadies the attention, but it steadies the attention by knowing whether it is thinking about something or whether it's being present to something. And as I've mentioned before, uh, any practice should show us that relevance, should show us whether we're just going in and making more noise or whether we are drawing ourselves uh, through that noise so that we can be clear as to what is noise and what is quietude. And with experience, with just the experience, without the noise maker there, all things are very quiet inside. And so the breath meditation should, if we're using it in the correct alignment and in the correct direction, should begin to, to show us the distinction between thinking about the breath or about anything and the breath, which doesn't need thoughts about it to, in order to move it. And so as we 
learn how to rest on the breath without compelling ourselves to think about it, we, there's, a, there's a change of, of location, environment that happens there. The thinking environment is very different than the quiet environment of just being present. And we begin to sense that the environment of just being present, even when it's very simply just on the breath that we're being present to, we, we feel like we're entering a kind of cave of ourself, a kind of quietness that we may not have known. And this can be very alluring. It can, within the cave, there can be a lot of, of attractive features. In fact, one of the components of this sutta is to uh, engender and cultivate calm within the breath. In fact, it says, breathe calm in while breathing in and breathe calm out when exhaling. So there's this um, focus on not just steadying our attention on the breath, but also nurturing a sense of calm and abidance as the breath is noticed. And that calmness uh, allows us to feel much more settled than we have been in the past. And in fact, it allows us to feel very relaxed. It, the calming effect on anything is a system's effect on us with a quieter and less tense mind and a relaxed body. Now, anytime our psyche is less compelled to think and our body is less resistant and less stressed and less um, tense, less tense, <laughs> what happens is that there's less noise. The tensions of our mind, the disturbances, the difficulties, the arguments we offer life is often a verbal, has a verbal content. If not verbal content, it has a um, component, almost physical component, of, of digging our heels in, that kind of feeling of just backing away or wanting to turn away from. And that sort of tightness has its effect upon us. And most of us have lived a long period of time under the duress of our own stress. And so as we begin to bring this calm on, when we begin to allow ourselves to feel the effects of the meditation in calm, and also simultaneously be to begin to notice when and what a life lived through thought is like and what a life lived through just abiding attention is like, we begin to appreciate appreciate from having lived the experience of it, we begin to appreciate what a body free of stress. And that begins to simplify our life down. We begin to want to be under less stress, under less stress. We don't want to carry the same kind of, of uh, often speedy and tense, re tense relationships to the different aspects of our life that we have been. We don't want to feel so closed off from ourselves. And so this simple breath meditation we can see brings us into the realm of calm and also sets a direction for us that is very enticing and alluring that says complexity is not necessarily where I want or how I want to spend my life. And I want it to just be simpler, just drawn by the beauty of what simplicity means, what it feels like to, to live uh, with less resistance. And so it's, it's just, it starts pulling us in in that way. And so we can line that up with the gauge that we set. Yeah, yeah, this is making me quieter. This is allowing me to establish some sense of direction and clarity for myself that with all the accompanying and compounding thoughts up until this point, I just haven't been able to establish. I haven't even been able to establish the fact of what the disturbance of thinking is doing to me until I begin to watch and see its effect upon me. And now that I have just gone under the uh, first layer of this noise, it sets in motion an intentionality in us to continue the process of less noise and more simplicity. And so that attention on the body not only steadies the mind, but also gives us a direction that is often a compelling direction for us. 
And then the sutta doesn't stop there. It takes us into the body itself, the physicality of the experience of the body. And we begin to develop a relationship with the body that puts the body in relationship to the earth. Anytime you enter the body, you enter the earth because the body is of the earth. In fact, you not only enter the earth, you enter the universe at large. I mean, enter it, not just be airy and spacey, but actually have a relationship to it, actually have a place within it. Because as I've noted in other uh, talks, the very elements of the body are elements of the stars, exploding stars, literally exploding stars form the atoms of our bodies. And so you begin to feel not only the resonance with the earth that is uh, holding all these elements, but with the stars themselves that replenished the earth many, many billions of years ago to establish this connection. And so when we enter the body, we enter much more than this very limited form that we have, as the poem said, you know, we've always, it's unsatisfactory, I don't like it, it's never right, it's never... But we get a sense that uh, we're entering something much larger than what we have taken our bodies to be. And we can begin to feel a sense of connectedness that we may have missed prior to now. And this is a very important uh, component of body meditation because from that sense of steadiness and with our learned and under, growing understanding and wisdom from bath, breath and body uh, connection, we begin to sense that this body could be nowhere else than where it is. Now that's a fundamental fact that when completely owned and completely acknowledged within oneself that we have no other life than the life of what we are leading in this moment and we have no other place to be than the place we are in this moment. And we suddenly, what dawns on us, or at least it did on me and I hope it does on you, is that I owe no excuse to anything for being where I am. There's no apology that I need to make to anyone for being where I am. And when I do feel apologetic, it's usually because I've done something deceitful and I feel that I shouldn't be where I am or I'll be found out, discovered. And so when I keep myself in some sort of ethical alignment, then I have no apology to make, period. I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't me move that way. In fact, it doesn't even make sense to say, oh, I wish I hadn't done that, or I wish I hadn't said that, or I wish I hadn't been there, and because you were, you did. And that's the only reality we have. There isn't another reality. There isn't another story that could be written except the story that has been written. Now, the reason that this is so important in terms of the quieting aspect of the meditation is that that confidence quiets us down considerably. Up until then, the mind, which is disassociated from the body for most of us and for most of our life, feels like it has lots of options other than where the body is. It thinks it could go hither and thither. It thinks it could, should be, would be, expecting to be in other locations. And it isn't until it absolutely sees in accordance with where the body is that it cannot be anywhere that it discovers its true home and quiets down in accordance with that fact, literally stops that endless running off, endless fantasize. And may I say, you know, that one of the beauties of the mind before we awaken to its disadvantages is the belief that it provides the conduit for us to leave anytime we want. And if the situation gets bad and the body can't leave, our mind certainly can, can't they? And do. And so oftentimes commitment for us is just showing up in body but not in mind. It's like I'll be here for you but don't ask me to be present for you. And a real 
um, maturation of what commitment means is that the body is in location and presence follows the body because those two now are in synchronicity with one another. They don't run off on separate tracks. But believing that the mind can take me anywhere and I can feel anything and I can believe anything and I can fantasize anything, you know, allows the, the mind to feel as if it has all the power in the world until it lines up with the wisdom that it has no power. It has no, all of the running offs are just forms of trickery, fantasy, imagination. And that the real world waits for those who invite it in and establish that line of confidence with it. And so with that line of confidence comes that unshakable sense of being in the right place at all times. And what that does is that it shatters our doubt. The doubt wavers in judgment and consideration and thinks maybe I should, I'm not up for the task and maybe I, I shouldn't give it, you know, I'll try a little bit, but I don't really think that I'm going to be able to do it. And with that, with the coming together of the mind within the body and the body with the earth and the assurance of here and now presence within that alignment, the doubt begins to become alleviated. It doesn't feel quite as convincing when the sounds of it arise. Because again, we're, it's not arising from the body and the body becomes the truer organism of direction. And the mind is the one that has to be constantly held by the body, brought into, you know, kind of reeled in, because the mind just, it just doesn't want to stay present. It's restless and turbulent. It's critical and always uh, expecting something that is not arising, wishing for something or fearing something that will be arising, and completely unsettled. And the body begins to become the masterful tool in this. And the mind becomes less uh, of, a, uh, of the uh, focus and investment of our energy. And it does that just through seeing that it really doesn't have anything bright to say. That the body has its own communication, its own alignment, its own intelligence is far greater in capacity and in, in wisdom than the mind. That just, it just babbles. It just babbles endlessly. But we've, we've invested for such a long period of time in the upper uh, three inches of our skeletal system that we just don't we don't really believe the truth of that, even though that it's there from the moment we sit down and acknowledge our presence on the earth, right on through the decades of our practice. And it's because everybody else is being driven by their gray matter. And the rest of the people who seem to be embodied somehow don't have a lot to say. And this seems to be a culture in which the more you have to say, the better off you are. And so we look across the aisle and we say, well, he's babbling. <laughs> Maybe I should keep, keep on. And we use, we use, because of our doubt, really, we use the cultural, uh, our cultural sensitivities. We keep looking at what others are doing for our own sense of guidance. And at some point, we have to break that tendency. We have to let the body do its governance. Let the body do its orientation and alignment. And I can't be so concerned about how you're practicing or what you're doing within your practice for my own sense of, of timing. And that's, it's very hard to learn how to trust the body 
in fact, the body is very difficult to trust in the beginning because it's the holder of aging, sickness, and death. And so it seems very finite, very limited in its capacity to tell us anything other than it has limitations. And so we think, you know, why do I want to be limited when I can think my way into eternity? Why not go there? Like today I was reading in the Washington Post an article that said, cosmologically, we could have all been, this universe could have been uh, sucked into a black hole. And that, because they think that when matter gets, goes into a black hole, it cre it's what's created there is other universes. And that we could have gone into a black hole whenever, <laughs> and this is the result, and we would never know it. So I read that, and I thought, well, that's interesting, but what difference does it make? <laughs> I mean, I could just go on and on about how do I get out of this black hole. <laughs> and that's, I mean, it really was kind of, I mean, the scientists would just come up with endless things for us to concern ourselves about. <laughs> like the Andromeda galaxy is colliding into ours in three billion years. That should have you on the edge of your seat. <laughs> well, I mean, my God, you know, let's look at this thing and deal with what we've got in front of our eyes here. Not worry too much about whether we're in a black hole and another galaxy is coming running at us. Because this thing steadies itself, steadies itself in balance and composure when we release the need to worry, when we release the need to have to plan for all the contingencies possible. And one of the, that begins to show us that, you see? But if we're not in the body, it will never show us that. None of this will ever be known. To take up residence in the body, to really let it inform our consciousness, rather than to be directed by thought, but to let the body take a leadership role, begins to show us what we're doing when we live a mentally directed role. It shows us the limitations of our life. It shows us where we've gone askew, and we begin to get a sense the wisdom of full embodiment, of full embodiment. In fact, the Buddha at one point said, you know, the whole world is created from within this fathom-long body. That everything that we have worried or sensed or thought or everything that we see and, and project, everything. He, I don't think he was limiting it to just physical sensation. He meant every aspect of the world. And so embodying ourselves begins to show us how we're doing just that. And also, you know, as we begin to learn how to trust the body, which is not an easy thing, because not only is the body the holder of aging, sickness, and death, but it also shows us the scar tissue, which I've mentioned before, the emotional scar tissue of our memories, which are often locked within our physical systems. And when we come back into the body, we feel our lack of forgiveness, our lack of tolerance for ourselves. We feel the memories of the uncertain and perhaps even abusive history that we have had. We feel the tensions of our history. And if any of you have ever had deep body work, often what comes out are these uh, very entrenched memories along with deep and profound and often volatile emotions locked within the system. And the other thing that the body begins to reel us in from is the projection of goal setting. Where are, where we think this where do we think this meditation, this spiritual journey is going? 
It's going to full embodiment. That's where it's going. And unless we're fully embodied, we'll never completely come to a full realization or full awakening because we'll constantly think about where in concept this spiritual journey moves instead of letting the body show us where it moves directly perceiving it directly from the body and so the body starts reeling in the propensity the need in ourselves to think outside of ourselves to think in ahead of ourselves to project our life in front of ourselves and we start embracing we start embracing from the body embodiment we start embracing from the body we start embracing now with a capital N N-O-W we start embracing now because the body doesn't hold a future it holds the encrustation of the past it holds the uh, volatility of what has been engendered in it but that is really coming now it's not coming from the past it's not something that the past is coming into the present it's that the present holds the past simultaneously within itself and so when I start feeling the past come through me it's really the present the the past that lives within the present not the past that we think has occurred at one point in our history all emotions all thoughts all memories come from the present and so when we start widening the definition of what the embracing presence is we begin to see that the body lives very much at the center of that presence. And that establishes a quietude that keeps us, that has been uh, the noise of the journeying forth, the noise of the journeying forth of making the future real or the past and trying to work out the past and try to settle all the scores within the past, all of that a tediousness of our life settles itself out in this fathom long body so we have to ask why does their mind want to leave the body what does it get from it you see it wants to leave it as I mentioned because of the emotional residue within the body and the lack of forgiveness we've given ourselves and I think uh, Heather may have mentioned about, talked about forgiveness last week. And I don't know how she spoke about it, but there's a, an important component of meditation, of spiritual journey, where we, we have to work on what it, where it, the, the stakes that we have placed into the grounds of the past that we have been tethered to. We have to start pulling those up. We can't constantly be turning around and excusing ourselves for things that have long since passed. We need to move on. And to heal with that often takes a little time, but it is done most thoroughly and effectively. In fact, it can only be done fully embodied. And the other thing that our minds the noise that our minds leave everywhere have you it's like a it's like a slug you know it kind of leaves a film wherever it moves our wherever we move to we never quite finish emotionally finish and complete mentally and so it's just kind of we have trails and traces of ourselves practically could retrace our steps of our lives just following uh, the slime of the slug <laughs> and what the body provides which is very quieting is a moment-to-moment -moment closure on situations I mean it's here and then it's somewhere else it's speaking and then it's not 
And there really isn't anything but closure when we govern our intelligence in accordance with the body. It doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes. We make a lot of mistakes. But it's not, it doesn't rip our body apart. It doesn't create a tension within our body where the body has to go back and move forward and back in eternal cycles of forgiveness and unforgiveness. And so it's necessary to, to feel that moment-to-moment closure and start practicing that. You know, where you're totally embodied, you're saying things from a heartfelt connection, connectedness, uh, and letting the body be governed by the heart which lies within it. And then saying whatever it seems appropriate to say or act in whatever way seems appropriate to act, and then let it be finished, let it be done. Why does the mind have to carry over a memory trace of everything? I should have stayed a little longer, I need to go back, I need to, you know, and or you just have this kind of emotional trace of the lingering quality of that conversation and we can't then move into a new conversation because we're still in the previous one. It's this sense of moment-to-moment closure that the body can provide. And, to, and also an end to some of this restlessness that many of us have. You know, if we want to quiet down, we have to be willing to stop some of this absolute reckless and restless behavior that we take part in, where nothing, wherever we are, it's not satisfactory. You know, it's this kind of feeling like uh, our nerves are just on edge all the time, that we've got to get up, we've got to start moving, we've got to keep moving. If we're not moving in location, we're moving from job to job, from relationship to relationship, from house to house, from person to person from thought to thought. What do you think, what what is the guidance that we need except the guidance of the body? I mean, I think it's such a great teacher and I think it's so overlooked. It's just been around, you know, we just take it, it's like, I know what this thing is, it's what I see in the mirror. Is it? See, the next step the Buddha takes us on is a real critical uh, perception of what the body is. Let's see what this body is. And deeper in the sutta, the Buddha suggests don't bring memory, remembrance, or knowledge to the body when, when you sit down with it. Don't bring what you know about it to the meditation. Now that's huge because he's essentially asking us to release the image of of what we know ourselves to be. And so when we sit down, this question of what is the body should arise because if it's made out of the stuff of stars and planted firmly in the earth at the same time, we're really exploring the cosmos here, not just this physical limited form. And we should be able to see the infinite within the limited. And as we begin to become quieter and not carry the image of ourselves, in fact, I would suggest in the meditation, the next time you do, to go into the breath and physical sensation of the body, then just drop carrying the image, carrying the image of what the body is. Just drop the image. See what the meditation is like, and many people come out and say, oh, I lost any concept of the body, as if the body shirked the concept. No, the mind did that, just released the need to think it into place. When that thought wasn't there, it became infinite. It became other than what we have always thought it was. And it's extraordinary, really, how infinite it can become simply by allowing it to be such. You see, and you also begin to see 
how we've warred off within that image the boundaries of self and other, of yours and mine, of this and that. And that the body is trying to impart a knowledge, something much greater, something more mysterious, something much more vast. And the mind keeps trying to corridor it back into something that's very contained, very certain, very reliably known. And so the mind on the body looks like an oppressor, really. But the, just the willingness to release the need to constantly reform it back into what the mind says it in, the body becomes very expansive. Boundaries are released. The edges are not seen as the edges of skin. And the universe becomes vast within this. As each thing ultimately has to show us, so the body has to show us its vastness. Each thing must show us its vastness. Because it's all vast. It's all centerless and empty and vast. And we really see, too, as we try to perform the gymnastics, the mental gymnastics of trying to come to self-acceptance, which I find many of us spin out on for long, long periods of time, much longer than we need to, because we never come to that. You'll never come to a complete self-acceptance as long as you're trying to do it through the mind. The mind will always hold judgment. That's what the mind does. It'll always hold a critical evaluation of yourself. You're not accepting enough. You've got more to do. That will be the messages when relied on mentally for self-acceptance. But the body holds a complete self-acceptance in its relinquishment of the mind. For it's not complaining about anything. It may be in pain, but it's not complaining. It's holding everything in absolute stillness of itself. And therefore, there's acceptance within that stillness, even acceptance of the mind as it holds the mind in with all of its noise and all of its antics and all of its movement. The body's not moving like that. The mind tries to get it to move, tries to get it to move, tries to get, but the body in its essence is just holding that. Now, if you want acceptance, you have to go into what holds the mind, not in try to find it in the mind itself. You can't juggle the material in the mind and come to acceptance. But that which holds the mind is, has always been and will always be accepting of it. It doesn't try to get you to do anything other than what you're already doing. It doesn't try to weigh in and judge. It just holds. It's just there. It's like the most reliable thing you could ever imagine. Not reliable in the fact that it doesn't age or get sick or die, but reliable in the fact that it doesn't whine <laughs> about what it's going through. And that's a wonderful quality that we have lost sight of. The body is quiet. And as we enjoy quiet, more quiet, and we enjoy the journey towards stillness, we enjoy the journey of the body that the body takes us on. And the body has a beautiful tool for meditation that, again, I think is often disregarded. And that is the ability to attend, to actually hold steady, and to listen. Listen bodily, not mentally. We're not listening through our judgments and opinions. That's listening with the mind. But listening with the body's intelligence. And as the mind gets quieter, the body's intelligence rises to listen, to sense. It senses. If you want to find a fast track to the intuitive, 
You do it through the body, not through the mind. The mind's not going to show you that. Because the body senses. Senses. Far richer and more refined and more subtle than the mind. And as you do a full body listening, that is the state of meditation. There isn't some other state you need to be in to meditate. It's, meditation is equivalent to the state of listening, of rapt attention. Where everything is being received, where everything is being held. And from that, when the body is called into action, from attention, from listening, it does so in spontaneity, not from calculated conditioning. It doesn't think about what it's going to do. It acts from that sense of the intuitive. It acts from spontaneity, from the creative impulse of that listening. It arises from that listening. Again, not in a calculated, thought-provoking way, but in a assurance, having taken in, it now responds. In fact, the taking in and responding is really one and the same. You don't have to check in with your history to see what's appropriate. In fact, the less you check in with the history, the more appropriate it is. Because the history, for the most part, will limit you. It limits us. It says, don't do this, you're not up for that. Stay in this, do that, because you've always done that. Do what you know is reliable and you can foresee the result of. It won't let us out of the trap door of, of the mental corridor that it has us in. It just keeps finding new pathways within the same maze, but it doesn't get us out of the maze. And somehow the gold box is just out of sight, just out of reach. But spontaneity takes us right to the gold box. Its actions are from the gold box, the gold being spontaneous, natural, organic action. And so this sense of body that have, we have been living with now for the eight, 16 weeks really, of it, ultimately, ultimately has us end in stillness, in silence. For the body is a holder of stillness. And you can begin to see that that's so disturbing for the mind to be held in stillness that what it does is it, it puts a partition of noise between itself and the body and then makes the body noisy. So that there's always something we're feeling about the body and complaining about it. It's not the breath, it's like how well am I breathing and how well am I doing and was this a deep enough breath and did I catch it and, uh, and we're just this constant commentary on the body. The body, it doesn't say anything. But the mind can't stand the fact that it's not talking back to it. So it invests as much as it can within the qualities of the body by mentally evaluating and comparing its body to other bodies or its body to an earlier body type. And then, oh, this hurts and this complaint and this, uh, this is sore and this. And then it just is full, fills itself full of noise and looks at the body and says, oh, your age, it just complete, it just covers it. It's like paints it so that we never see the genuine and natural color of the body. To keep anything between ourselves and stillness, that's the object of the mind. The mind does not, cannot, will not rest with quietude. But it can learn to rest with the body. 
And as it works its way through the body, egoically, egoically, it sees the need, it feels compelled to come in alignment with the body. And the body teaches it about silence, teaches that silence is safe, teaches it that it doesn't have to constantly focus externally. It teaches the way towards relaxation. It teaches the way towards listening. It teaches the way towards full embodiment. And so the mind begrudgingly gives up much of its need, having been seen exposed for what it was, and the investment of energy now going into the body rather than the mind. The mind becomes unemployed, lost in, doesn't have a job to fulfill anymore because we're not moving in relationships to its noise, to its sounds. And so finally it comes to rest. And may that happen to us all. Can we have a sit for a minute or two? And as you sit, I just want to read the final paragraph of the foundation of the body. In this way, he or she remains focused internally on the body, in and of itself. In and of itself means what it really is. Or externally on the body, in and of itself. Or both internally and externally on the body, in and of itself or he or she remains focused on the phenomenon of origination, how it comes into being, how it's taken to be something, or the passing away with regard to the body, what happens when we release the image, or on the phenomenon of origination and passing away, or his mindfulness that there is a body is maintained to the extent of knowledge and remembrance. So it's just in reminding myself I have a body, that's the only thing that brings it back into being. And he or she remains independent, sustained by not clinging to anything in this world. And this is how a monk or nun remains focused on the body in and of itself. So if there are any questions or comments, I'd be happy to. Yes, sir. So the question is, there, is there, can there be an active practice, right? An active participation. Is that right? Or can the practice of sitting reinforce that other activity? Oh, yes. Can the practice of sitting reinforce activity, right? Yeah. And, and the awareness of activity. Absolutely. In fact, somewhere in the sutta, the Buddha does something really radically. He, um, and I was going to talk about it, but I just didn't have time. And that was that he, he just has the full onslaught set of uh, activities. He says standing, sitting, washing, leaning, sleeping, crouching, peeing. He just goes on and on. Uh, doesn't leave out a lot of activities, which is the full onslaught for a monk. It's very, I mean, he didn't talk about running and jumping and that kind of stuff. But he leaves it clear to the reader that all activities are embraced in this way. 
And he says, bringing full awareness to all those activities. So what he's doing, essentially, he's doing something very fundamentally important. He's um, no longer separating the secular from the spiritual. He's not saying, only sit and abide following your breath and let all everything else come to that kind of slowness or pace or walking very mindfully. He's throwing everything into the same bucket, mixing them all over, up, say there's no difference here. Now, but what, what is it then that you have to give up in order to fully abide? Because it's not easy to be as active and as uh, full of commotion and fully abide in awareness. And so the way he is moving this is that you have to lose the need to control it. You have to, you, you can't, it can't be of your agenda. You can't say, okay, now I'm going to steady everything out and just be mindful, okay, okay, for this moment. And because as soon as you're not in control, because all 10,000 things will be rushing at you, you'll lose the ability to set that structure in place when things are bombarding you. So you have to release the need to try to control it or structure it. So what then catches you? What catches you when you don't have you know, everything in place and you're doing one thing at a time is your intention, is your desire uh, for the complete uh, integration of mind and body. And so if that is your intention, then the body will then have to come forward within that intention and to hold each thing as it dances and moves within awareness, not separating itself out in any kind of mindful, structured practice, but full embodied awareness is full participation in life and full participation in life is controlling, is not no longer controlling your spiritual journey. It's just coming at you in a complete, wide-open, 180-degree, 360, and, but awareness is holding all things. Rather than me trying to assert awareness onto each thing, each thing as it comes, comes into awareness, which is a very different formula for spiritual practice. Any other questions or comments? Okay, thank you all. We'll have some announcements and uh, then we'll Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.